Our Father in Heaven, we ask that You would be with us now by Your Spirit through Your Word, that You would teach us and um, that we would be woken up out of our slumber perhaps, that we would hear of Your grace, that it would renew us, that we would see the beauty of Jesus, and that uh, we would follow Him more intimately. Uh, For those, Lord, that need You tonight in intense ways, we pray that You would meet them. And uh, Lord, um, we ask all of this in Your name. Amen. Uh, A a couple of introductory comments. Um, Psalm 34 is a little bit longer than Psalm 23 that we looked at last week, so we can't hit everything as in-depth as we did last week. Um, So this will be an admitted, you know, skimming of the surface in a lot of respects, but still going to look at it. And then secondly, if you're just joining us, we're looking at a series called Life in the Psalms. Each week, looking at a new psalm. We've, we've kind of titled it Learning to Love. And the reason for that is, is that we have said that our hearts um, are like children in some ways. They need to be taught what to love. They don't come out automatically loving the right things. And if you and me are honest, I think that we could say, oh yeah, I think I know what it's like to love the wrong thing. And well, the great grace of God is, is that He gives us these psalms And these are songs, and the songs are are actually meant to further shape our hearts to love the right thing. Remember we talked about initially, first week here, you'll remember, every hour, what plays? You remember? Hail, all hail, TCU. And we've talked about that being an illustration of every hour you are reminded to love your university through song. Well, here we have 150 songs given to God's people to help shape us. So there you have it. That's what we're looking at in this this semester. We're going to jump right in to Psalm 34. And uh, you've had it before you've read it. I want to start by sharing a story with you. About a year ago, as many of you know, my wife Laura and I, um, we were pregnant, well she was pregnant, with uh, our twin girls, Audrey and Evangeline. And uh, they they were sick. Uh, you may not remember this, but we had to have surgery while they were still in utero to save their lives. And that happened about uh, the last few days of January. And bef- between the last few days of January and the middle to late part of April when they were born, boy, those were some really hard times for us. We didn't know exactly uh, how they were doing. Uh, we didn't know if they were going to make it. And many nights we cried, we wondered, and we really were curious as to see how these girls would turn out, especially even if they, were, uh, if they would survive. We were profoundly aware as well that there was nothing that we could do to fix anything. We were powerless. That feeling of inability to change our circumstances. And we were fearful. We began wondering if things would ever get better. The point is, is that we just didn't know. If our little girls were going to make it. Now God's been faithful. Of course, they're living. They're, they're both wonderful and they're growing and we're very, very grateful. But before we kind of go through there, you might think that a pastor would um, be able to go through a circumstance like that and have this rock-solid confidence in God. And I just want to tell you that that's not the case. That's just not the case at all. You see, uh, we often wondered if God would provide all that we needed for them. In reality, such you know, was the case that we were actually quite lonely, wondering where God was in the midst of all this. 
Sure, the Bible told us that God loved us and that He wouldn't leave us or forsake us. That He would meet all of our needs. But in the midst of those trying, difficult circumstances, the heart really does find it hard to believe all of those promises. The point I'm trying to make is is that um, we knew deeply, we knew deeply our own sense of need. We knew the dark moments of those circumstances and we longed for a way out. I share this story with you because in many ways that's what we're going to look at tonight. You see, this psalm, as you can tell, has been written by King David. And he is, um, he is being pursued by the man who is actually on the throne A man named Saul is chasing him down to take his life. There is a bounty on his head and he has fled from the capital city where the throne is and he is residing now with his enemies in Gath, the the people called the Philistines. And the Philistines are bringing him to this king of Gath and David, wonder of all wonders, begins to drool. And he begins to act crazy. And it's in the midst of that 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 king sets him loose because he says, that guy's a madman. Get him out of my presence. Next, thing you think, next time you think about being insane, it might, it might work for you. But my point is this. David is looking back at that experience and the process through which God is delivering him. And he's giving thanks in this psalm. So there's the context of this psalm. Listen, you live long enough and you'll have these difficult circumstances too. Some of you are in them right now. Though your life isn't being threatened, you know all too well what loneliness feels like. You know what helplessness is. And you know what it's like to begin to doubt if there is a God and if He cares one whit about you. This psalm has these realities in mind. And David is inviting us to sing in those circumstances, to sing about those circumstances, and to sing through those circumstances as well. This psalm shows us that genuine thanksgiving always has its roots in life's difficult circumstances. So, how does God meet us? You can see it right there on the page. We'll see that it is in His presence, in His provision, and finally in His promises that that He comforts us and leads us into genuine thankfulness. Let's take a look at the first of those. You can see it there. It's called what I'm naming God's presence in the midst of difficult circumstances. If you look, uh, if you think about this, kind of thinking about it, I want you to think for just a moment in your life when things were incredibly trying or difficult. For the Christian, perhaps it looks something like this. It might have been that party that you were going to where you knew that you were making the conscious decision that you're saying, if I don't drink at this party, I know that I'm going to be ostracized and that people will alienate themselves from me. Perhaps you've known that. Perhaps you're somebody in your major. You're the only Christian. And to speak of your faith in some way brings about relational distance with the people that you really care about. 
So you know what loneliness is like. Well, whatever the circumstance, it's there. And David is saying that he wants you to know that it's in the midst of that difficult circumstance that God is actually with you. Look at verse 7. Can you see it there? He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known... Sorry, I'm reading the complete wrong psalm. How about the other psalm? Verse 7, still same one. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. There He is, right? The angel of the Lord was an Old Testament way of talking about God's very presence. And the image is one of a whole legion of angels surrounding the One that God loves. Can you imagine that? That if you're a Christian tonight, that's what you have at all times. That's unbelievable. That's what you have at your disposal. Look again at verse 18. I'm on the right psalm this time. He says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and to those and he saves those crushed in spirit. Now you might think he's talking about somebody who's sad, who's having a bad day, but that's not what David's talking about here. In other words, David is talking about those who are contrite, who know that they've made a mess of their life. That it's a mess of their own doing. And they're beginning to sense their own brokenness. And David says, you know what? God is not far from that person at all. That He's very near to them. Think about it in two ways. As an illustration, I have a friend that works at a high-powered investment baker up in New York City. Um, He became a Christian about two or three years ago. And for him to be a Christian in this financial firm means exactly what I mentioned earlier. Nobody will talk to him. Because for him, as a Christian, he has a set of ethics that flow from his beliefs. That means he won't cheat. That means he won't cook the books. It means he's an honest man. But his business practices from the rest of the firm invite those sort of, uh, those sort of practices. So for him to raise and to talk about his faith means all sort of chaos. Do you see that? There's the tension. There's the distance. And God is saying, that circumstance is not of your own making, dear friend, but I am with you in it. That's situation one. Situation two. Perhaps this is your story. Think of a college sophomore. She's a Christian. And she has a pattern in her life where she sleeps and gives her body away to men who aren't her husband. Think about that for a moment. What does the Bible say to her? Do you know what it says? It says, I'm with you. It's different language. The language is more like this. My lamb. My lamb. You're free to stop now. I'm here. And I will lead you out of this hole that you have dug. I was with you while you were digging it. And while we could have stopped long ago, I haven't left you. And we can leave now too. Do you see that? The mess of your own making. God in His grace is still right there with you. That's what this is saying. I'm going to press in once more because I went after a female. So here we go. I'll go after a male. Fellas, we're just going to go right to the heart. Okay? 
the computer screen that you love, that you're addicted to because of porn? Do you know that there is real grace for you? If your practice is 15 minutes on the screen, that for you to pull up the reins at five minutes is real grace for you? That God invites you to turn even there? And He says, I'm with you, dear one. Come. Let's go. I'm with you. I have not left you and abandoned you. To some of you, you find that utterly offensive, that God would love sinners that much. But here's the thing. Do you know what the Scriptures say about the way that your heart is recovered? It's not by God beating you upside the head and making you feel smaller than you already are. It's by Him giving you His grace and reminding you that He actually is with and is passionately in love with sinners. Do you believe that? That's what David is trying to get at here. I want you to know that one of the things that you have in the deepest and darkest of circumstances is God's very presence. He has not left you. He has not left you. He is with you. Secondly, it's more than just His presence that He gives you. Do you see it there? I've put it on your sheet. It says that God gives us a provision in those difficult circumstances. Well, what is it? Well, look at verses 8-14. to Remember, this psalm is a picture of David looking retrospectively on all that God has done for him in his own rescue. What does God do? I mean, what does David do after this happens? Well, we read it at the very beginning. Verses 1 to 3 are him actually giving praise to God himself, thanking him, thanking him. David is highlighting the instruction there in verses 11 through 14. I cannot touch upon that tonight. We touched about it in the very first sermon. So you can go back and look at that at Psalm 1. So I'm admittedly passing it over, but it's there. The most intriguing set of verses, I believe, comes in verses 8 to 10. You'll notice David says, He actually commands us. Do you see it in verse 8? He says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, Mama lions know how to hunt. And they know how to bring their kill to their babies. The king of the jungles, they know how to feed their babies. They're the ones that know how to get prey. And David says, even those baby lions go hungry. But the one who takes his delight in the Lord lacks no good thing. Do you see what God is actually providing? Now some of you immediately are going, I don't see anything. I mean, is He supposed to give me stuff in the midst of those hard circumstances? Look at what David says, verse 8. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, David is saying the provision that God actually gives is Himself. It's His actual self. Now, that is incredibly challenging because we want God to give us His stuff, right? That's what we want. But the Scriptures are saying you don't need God's stuff nearly as much as you need God Himself. And that's what He gives. The taste and see language is speaking of a deep 
intimate, experiential knowledge of something. Not just a head knowledge or mental assent. Think about it this way. To know that 2 plus 2 equals 4 requires little of your experience. We all know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. We would say, Carter, do you know that? Michael, do you know that? You would say, yes, I know it. But it's a head knowledge almost. It's a mental assent. Do you see that? David's saying you can know the Lord in a much deeper and richer way. Think about it like this. I want you to think about honey for a second. The gold stuff that bees make. I asked my wife once um, where honey comes from. And this was hysterical. She says it's from their poop. Which is not true at all. But that's what my wife thought honey came from. From bees' poop. Not the case at all. comes from pollen. There's saliva. That's actually what it is. But the point is this. You all know it's sweet. It's clean. Don't worry about it. Okay, I didn't mean to throw you off there. First, say, think of honey for a second. How would you describe it to somebody, my friend Bob, who's never had it? Now, you might be able to say, well, Bob, it's sweet. Or if you were a chemical person, a chemist, you might say, hey, it's got fructose and glucose in it, and those sugars are really, really sweet. And you might be able to describe to him what you have perceived through your taste buds. But Bob is not going to know what honey tastes like until he what? Until he tastes it. A pastor from the years of early 300s, sort of 330 to 350 B.C., a long, long time ago, he wrote this, as the nature of honey can be described to the inexperienced not so much by speech, but as by the perception of it through taste, so the goodness of the heavenly Word, that is, God Himself, cannot be clearly taught by doctrines unless we are able to comprehend by our own experience the goodness of the Lord. Do you know what that means? That God Himself sits before you and He says, come. Come feast on. Come dine on my goodness to you. It is a bounty laid forth for you. He puts Himself on offer for us for our deep satisfaction. Y'all listen. At RUF, we're going to say this. We're going to say that that tasting of God's goodness comes to us in the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God found for us in Jesus. Because of this, Right here, we're going to constantly point you to the mercies of Jesus. Because once you begin to taste that, you have begun to know something of God in a way that mere mental assent can't touch. That's what we want for you. I long for each one of you to say, I've tasted the Lord's goodness. I know it. I know it and it has changed me. It's been there for me in the midst of life's darkest and deepest and hardest of circumstances. And when you begin to know that, do you know what? You now have intimacy with the Maker of heaven and earth. This is the best thing for your soul. I guarantee you. Look, that's what David is trying to get at. 
It's actually God's provision of Himself that is for us here. Thirdly, God's promise in difficult circumstances. Not only does He give us, as we said, His presence and His provision, but God gives us His promise. What is that? Well, look with me at verses 4-6. to Do you see it there? He said, I sought the Lord, and He, God, answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, meaning David himself, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And then if you were to go down to verse 15, you would see there through 22, much of the same language. Do you see it there? Many are the afflictions of the righteous in verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Do you know what God's promise for you is? God in His grace to you has promised that He will actually deliver you out of the deepest and darkest and most difficult of circumstances. So when you are in the midst of them, with Him by your side, you can take great confidence knowing this, that He will see your way out of them. He will not leave you there. He just won't. Now some of you raise a immediate question and you go, well, wait a second. I got you on this one, Ryan. Because I've been going through some hard circumstances myself. I know that God's with me and I don't seem to be getting out of them one bit. How do you account for that? Well, let's take a look. I want to remind you that we're looking at poetry. And poets, as they are prone to do, have the ability to take language and raise it up. Right? I mean, the poet's not actually saying take a bite out of God like you would an apple to taste Him. No. It's metaphorical language in a heightened sense to paint a picture of something. And I would suggest to you that that's what, that's what David is getting at here. That God really does deliver. He really does move you through them all. So I can't promise you that life is going to be easy. The psalmist actually says that there's afflictions. Think about the Apostle Paul. Do you remember what he said in 2 Corinthians? He said that he had a thorn in his side. And that he begged God three times to take it away. And God looked at him and said, Paul, brother, my grace is sufficient for you. And if that weren't enough, what if we looked at Jesus? That man was a man of sorrows, it said. That he was a man well acquainted with grief. That he was actually praying in Gethsemane, facing the cross. And do you remember what he said? Father, if it be Your will, let this cup pass from Me. In other words, remove this cup of suffering. And did God do it? No. He didn't do it. He let Him stay the course. And the affliction remained. Now we're going to come back to that and why that's a source of great hope and confidence for us. But He didn't remove it. Listen, here's what I want you to see in the midst of all of this. I want you to know that David is saying that 100% you can take it to the bank that God and His goodness is not only with you in it, but He ultimately will deliver you. Now, here it is. What do I mean by ultimately? Look. The last affliction that you will face, do you know what it is? It's death itself. And if you think it's crazy that I should talk to a group of 20-somethings about death, you obviously haven't been reading your campus news lately for the past couple weeks. One of your fellow students passed away last week. Whether you knew him or not, 
I don't know. But I can tell you this. You're not immune to death. But the promise is that God Himself will actually bring you through that as well. Do you know that? That He'll deliver you through that as well. And I need to tell 18 to 22 year olds that. Because I don't know what's going to happen. I hate to be so grim, but I'm trying to be honest with you. Do you want me to just pat over things and pretend like this stuff doesn't exist? Or you want me to be real and honest with you? I want to tell a story with you. Uh, there was a man, a missionary. His name was John Patton. Has anybody heard that name before? Okay, it's okay. John Patton was a missionary to a group of people in the New Hebrides Islands down in the South Pacific in the mid-1800s. And he was probably the third or fourth guy to go there. The first two guys there that we know were eaten by the people that they went to. The people on these islands were cannibals. And they saw people come and ate them. And so John is going to go and try to share the Gospel with them and tell them of Jesus. And these people hated him for years. After four years on this island, do you know what happens? He decides he's ready to leave. And he and the only convert that he has seen in four years, his name is Abraham, are surrounded now by these natives. There's a whole mass of them. And they're actually arguing amongst themselves who gets to throw the first blow at Abraham and John. And now I turn over, in the midst of that experience, John Patton's own words. Will you listen? My heart rose up to the Lord. I saw Him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my Master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow would leave the bow, or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. Do you have a category for a God like that? That's how big God is. And dear one, God will not give you more than you can handle. And in the midst of it, He is there. And He has promised to see you through it. Through every affliction, even if it's death itself. That is meant to give you great joy. David is looking back through his experience, seeing this, and now he's singing about it. How can he do this? How can you and me do this? How can we have any sort of confidence that God is actually with us? Ryan, you've said all this, but how do I know that that's the case? And the answer is found in the last verse. Do you see it there? The Lord redeems the life of His servant. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. The reason that we can take great hope is because I want you to know something particular about Jesus as it's related to this verse. The word redeem literally means to buy back or to purchase. And in the New Testament, we hear of a man 
who stared down death much like John Patton did. The ultimate dark dark circumstance. And he walked right into it and he blasted the back out of it three days later. In so doing, do you know what he did? He paid for your life. He redeemed it. He bought it back. And now your soul belongs, you actually belong both body and soul to God. In other words, all the loneliness, helplessness, and doubt that you rightly deserve, Jesus Himself gladly took for you. And you got the very intimacy of God. That's the best news that you're going to hear tonight. God Himself with you. With you. Faithful to you. In the midst of the holes that you have dug. This is what you have tonight. And you'll never be condemned. Freedom. The gavel is laid down. Court is adjourned. Your name cleared because of Jesus taking your guilt for you. Hallelujah, that is great news tonight. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Will you pray with me? God, thank You for this 34th Psalm that reminds us of the mercies that You have for those who are in desperate need of You. Would You remind us of our need, O Lord? Would You give us the rock-solid confidence that not one thing will fall upon us because unless You so ordain it and You so move it, O Lord, we can take great hope that You love us because Your character is good and that Your design for us is to be with You both now and forever. This is our great hope. Would You help us to sing now about the Jesus who really did ransom us, who really did redeem us, the One who paid it all. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.